I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Tennessee Ball Sports Guys, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Everything School HQ over there, also in Knoxville, Tennessee, of RockyTopInsider.com. Ryan Shumpert. Ryan, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to uh, glad to be back after a couple week hiatus. It's the longest we've done a hiatus on the Tennessee uh, ball side of things here. It's been uh, this will this would have been three weeks, which would have been crazy town, especially with everything going on. I mean, no football season, it wouldn't have happened then. But uh, with just life and my weekend to the last couple weeks, I was in Atlanta previous weekend and uh, other stuff going on. So the weekends were, have been kind of hectic of late. But I'm glad we were able to get back Super Bowl, um, obviously yeah. as well. So. Uh, you know, we're we're back in gear. Ethan, I think, is going to be back after a little bit of a hiatus there. Who knows what Jack's doing these days? Jack's all over the place. Well, I know where he is right now. He's in Dallas. Oh, okay. Going well, baseball. See? So I knew he wasn't going to make it tonight. Jack out here making the trip. The traveling Jack Foster. He'll be back soon. We'll, we'll have Jack Foster back on again soon here, Ryan. But we still have a lot of content. Uh, we have a lot of... A lot of Tennessee stuff going on, not just baseball, which, as you mentioned, uh, friend of the pod, Xander Seacrest, making the start tonight for Tennessee baseball. So excited to see what that looks like for him against Baylor um, and how Tennessee uh, gets through in a weird rubber match where it's not really because it's three different teams, but uh, still a situation where you want to get out of there winning two of three uh, in Dallas. But we'll get to Tennessee baseball momentarily. Ryan, let's start um, 24 hours after uh, your biggest takeaway from uh, the Tennessee Vanderbilt game last night in TBA, where oof, Tennessee had a 99% chance going into the game of winning, and uh, they they very much took care of business early and uh, never looked back. Woof is right, and you know I I wrote it in my lead that at halftime performance uh was these australian shepherds that were doing all these cool tricks and stuff and mm-hmm. if you've ever seen the movie Airbud, hard yeah. to imagine that 
these Australian shepherds wouldn't have been better at basketball than Vanderbilt was yesterday. Uh, mm. And I mean, I think that's the, you know, I think there was Richard G. West maybe got some people today with uh, Jerry Stackhouse firing. But man, it, it, would, it would have been pretty believable if Andy pulled the trigger uh, on Stackhouse this morning because, man, they were just uncompetitive and, and really, really terrible. So that's probably my biggest takeaway from the Tennessee side. I think just the way that, and I've said it before, you know, the the good thing or maybe the the slump buster for this Tennessee offense is the fact you have Dalton Connect too, and things aren't going right on the offensive end. He's able to to go get some buckets for you, but still, when Tennessee's offense at its best, they're moving the basketball really well, and they're getting a lot of different guys involved. And that was about as good as Tennessee's moved the basketball all year. I mean, there felt like there were some possessions there in the first half where you know. They weren't hardly dribbling. I mean, it was just off-ball movement, running off screens, like the best form of Rick Barnes' offenses, and uh, they were humming along, and obviously they shot the ball really well from the perimeter, and really everybody uh, got involved on the offensive side. Tennessee obviously shot extremely well um, in this one. It was huge for their Kempom ranking um, with how efficient they were offensively and the margin of victory for Tennessee in this one. I wonder, I mean... Look, I think the order of operations for Tennessee is Dalton Connect is your lead option. Sakai, number two. Jonas Adu, number three. And that's been very different because so much of last year was reliant, uh, especially after Sakai went down uh, with Santi and Josiah. And now they've kind of been relegated, not in the negative sense, just in terms of role, uh, just by nature of the depth and the just the order of operations for Tennessee to be a top five team with Santi and Josiah. They had another great night uh, combined, uh, the two of them. They obviously shot the ball extremely well. To you, did you see anything different from Santiago Vescovi? Because it feels like he was a big one coming out of this game where they were a lot of good looks, but I I don't know. What did you make of Santiago's game against Vanderbilt? And do you think uh, you saw enough to kind of look, hey, this uh, this is a, a new thing going forward. Or maybe he's going to start shooting more, maybe start hitting more threes. Or do you think it's just always going to be game-by-game basis based on where he's at in the pecking order. I do think there was something different. I mean, he had a quick trigger on it and Mm. looked more like last year where they needed him to to shoot anytime he got a glimmer. Um, And obviously, he hasn't been that way, even though, you know, he's I think in SEC play now, he's shooting at like 39% from three. So he's, as a whole, kind of back to his averages, but he's just been so tentative. And I think a lot of it is, you know, him knowing he's not the main guy and him wanting to defer more offensively. And I think that's, you know, to your question on the long term, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of still in wait and see mode on it. But whereas, you know, Josiah is the kind of guy that what he gives you offensively kind of just feels like gravy and you know it's going to be inconsistent and you know you're not going to get it every game and you hope it's on one of those games where he does give it to you and he does have a really big game that, you know, you kind of need it like at North Carolina State. Santi to me feels more like – he can elevate the offense to another gear because you know he is such a good shooter. If he can shoot, mm-hmm. find a way to get more more open looks and shoot him at a higher rate, you'll see. You can maybe see a Tennessee team that's been about at the national average in three point shooting shoot a little bit higher rate and have another guy that really strikes fear in the defenses and opens up driving range just because of the range that he can shoot it to. Um, where it almost feels like if Tennessee offense finds another gear and gets even better this year. I think it's the path would be Vescovy hitting more shots and playing a lot more confident and uh, just not necessarily hunting a shot, but being much less tentative and not deferring as much and Tennessee kind of finding a way to make that mesh with Dalton being the 
the alpha scorer, alpha scorer, and, and Zakai and Jonas also doing their thing. Yeah, and I think have you asked Santi about the timidness in the last couple of weeks or no? I'm not specifically about the timidness. I guess not him. I think we've I've asked Rod Clark about it. Um, and you know he's kind of talked about it as a whole. He's talked about more of the taking less shots, not necessarily being timid. And he, you know, he just kind of has the same answer about you know just wanting to win and deferring to teammates and feeling like they have better op, you know, having other options. Um, but he hasn't, you know, he hasn't addressed necessarily the the being timid aspect of it. Do you think Tennessee was getting different shots than what they've normally gotten over the last few weeks against Vanderbilt, or do you think it was the same kind of looks and same kind of offense that it was just the nature of a hey, averages and Tennessee was bound to start hitting have a have a game where they hit a bunch of threes like they did yesterday? I think it was more of that. What I would say is different, and I think you've kind of been going this way since the Kentucky game. Is it's gotten further away from the ball screen stuff mm. and uh, Zakai Jonas or Dalton Jonas. It's it's been a lot more of the off-ball movement and back to what the offense has largely been during Barnes' tenure. So I think that's been different, but I don't think that was necessarily just last night. I think you've seen Tennessee really move in that direction ever since they lost that South Carolina game when, you know, I know Rick Barnes made it a point of being like, we're not doing this. Like, he, Dalton can bail us out if we need it, but we got too many good offensive players to sit around and wait for him to do everything and to run our whole offense like this. Um, so I think a lot of it was – Vandy wasn't very good defensively. Uh, and like you said, Tennessee was due for a night, especially at home where they just made a ton of shots. Yeah. Um, what was, uh, who was your best performance here? Was it Santiago? Was it someone else who, who stood out the most to you yesterday? Yeah, it's a tough one. Cause everyone you know, seemingly played really good. I think it's probably Vescovy. Um, just cause he passed the ball really well too. I think he had five assists. Um, and just again the the aggression. He had one really nice finish at the light, or at the basket um, in the first half too. But him or him or Zakai, one of those two guys. I thought Zakai was in the last two years. I thought that was the best game he's played against Ezra Manion. Uh, mm. Try not to just call him Manion in my Southern Tennessee accent because that's the one guy in the SEC that's I guess the Hubbard kid at Mississippi State too would probably fall under this now. But those are the two kids in the SEC that are as quick and fast as Zakai, which mm. is. The guy almost every game can get by his guy. It's, you know, how efficient yeah. can he be hitting shots around bigger guys in the paint or getting his teammates open shots? And you've seen some games where Manion's really outplayed him, uh, or he at least, even the games he hasn't outplayed him, the guy hasn't been overly effective. I thought last night he was just fantastic against a dude that is one of the few dudes in SEC that he can't just blow by. On the flip side, this might be harder uh, to pinpoint because of uh, how Tennessee played as a whole yesterday, but who who struggled the most or who do you think had a, the most forgettable performance against Vanderbilt? I think it's probably Jordan Ganey just cause he didn't shoot the ball mm -hmm. very well. Um, I don't think he, you know, was necessarily like the A and M game last Saturday. I felt like, you know, he didn't make shots, but there were other things where I was like, he's struggling out there besides yeah. not making shots. Like he can't stay in front of his guy. I didn't see anything last night besides him just not making shots. It made me think, Oh, he's having a bad night. I did jinx him hand up on the free throw. I tweeted out earlier in the week how he hadn't missed a free throw in SEC play. And of course, he missed one last night right after I, I tweeted it out. So hand up. Apologies to Jordan. That was my fault. Uh, I jinxed him on that one. So I think he's probably that guy. Um, but again, that one felt just as simple as he didn't have a very good shooting night. And I think people just forget because it's like, oh, when, it, when Ganey's off, because he is a shooter, he's a hot, cold guy. He's going to shoot a lot of threes. But he also 
was extremely hot against Arkansas. Like it's just yeah. easy to forget that it was uh, days ago. And um, and if he's streaky, that's okay because he's seventh, eighth guy uh, on this team. And if that's what they need, because what they might need a uh, uh, a tournament game uh, where Ganey needs to go off, and you catch Ganey at a at a really big moment, and Ganey has four threes or something, and that bails Tennessee out uh, of a game where they're not shooting the ball well, and Ganey steps up. So it's okay if that's ultimately you just need that kind of back and forth from Ganey, even if it is streaking, it will uh, annoy some Tennessee basketball fans about that streakiness. It's just some guys just are, and if that's what Ganey is this year, that's still is a net positive because I think there will be games where Ganey um, bails Tennessee out with uh, hot shooting because he has the ability uh, to shoot from three. Um, and we'll, we'll see. I think we're just going to see more of that back and forth um, from Jordan Ganey on the three-point aspect to it. And I, speaking to the free throw, he really has felt automatic all year. Like Jordan yeah. Ganey is someone like technical foul. Like he might be my first pick of a Tennessee player to uh, take important free throws come tournament time um of anyone on the flip side there's not a lot you can like pick at with dalton connect um the sec player of the year favorite and this isn't really something i i would necessarily say pick at but maybe something i've jotted down as a concern potentially is the free throws right do you have that in front of you what is dalton connect like i'm curious what would you guess he's shooting as a whole from the free throw line versus what he actually is i'm curious about this yeah, no, I I just pulled it up, and that was my exact point, was that it feels like he's shooting a lot worse than he is because I think he's mm-hmm. just been on a really cold stretch, and he's had a, a couple games where he's struggled. Um, you know, it feels like, and I'll pull it up in a second, it feels like an SEC play, he's shooting, like, high 60s. Mm-hmm. He's shooting 76 mm-hmm. over the course of the season. So, like, he's still shooting it pretty good. Yeah. Um, but he's had some bad bad games shooting it, and he's had – it feels like some over trips where he goes up yeah. there and misses two. Um, and obviously those and, and misses on the front end of the one and one always, always make it feel worse. Mm. I just, I think that's one of those where, because he also goes to the line a lot because Dalton connect gets fouled a lot. He, you have more eyeballs on him going to the line, but 76%, Definitely. it's one of those per- things where it just, it doesn't feel like it when you're watching the games, and then you go back and you're like, Oh, it's only, I think it's what you said where it's not like one of two. Every now and then, it's like an zero for two trip where you're like, "Oh, okay," um, and then he'll hit several in a row, and you won't you won't remember the misses. But either way, that's uh, not a lot to pick at when it comes to Dalton Connect uh, and his what he brings uh, for Tennessee each and every night. Um, I'm curious about this though because this was a hot shooting week really for Tennessee basketball when you combine the Arkansas midweek game with Vanderbilt on Saturday. What for you, Ryan, was the biggest takeaway from a week of Tennessee basketball? What did you see from both games that maybe um, you saw in Arkansas that also translated into Vanderbilt? That um, what, what particular about this whole week of offensive basketball did you take away? Just looked it up, by the way, 73% SEC play. So even an SEC mm-hmm. play, it's not as bad as it feels. Um, you know, that's a good question. I think on the macro, it's just the fact that Tennessee came off of it's probably its worst performance of the year, or at least its most lopsided loss, and was really mm-hmm. dialed in and, and put away two teams. And you heard Rick Barnes talk about probably the thing he was most upset about with the A&M game is he felt like he didn't use the word panic, but they got off script. Like A&M hit all those shots, and he's like, we reverted from the game plan, and we got away from what we wanted to do. And then you go to an Arkansas team who's the only team in – A&M's the only team in the SEC that's worse shooting the three than Arkansas, and they start red hot. And you saw Tennessee stick to the plan and 
you know, as you'd expect, Arkansas couldn't keep that up over a 40-minute game. I think when you look at the offense, uh, to me, I think the thing I would pinpoint is that you got multiple guys involved in, in both games, and I would probably just say Jonas Adu. Hmm. In, he didn't have a massive night against Vanderbilt, which again, Tennessee didn't need him to. Um, and he, you know, we only played around 20 minutes because that was one of the other really good things about really the week as a whole for Tennessee is they got a lot of rest mm-hmm. for their main guys, especially Zakai and Dalton, who are probably going to be logging 35 minutes every game the rest of the season. So yeah, that's nice. Um, but you know, for Jonas, you look at Tennessee's last two SEC losses in South Carolina and A&M, it was losses where they, the offense was bad. And the reasons you feel like this offense is, you know, there's a number of reasons, but one of the big reasons you feel like this offense is so much better than the last couple of years is that it can find ways to be successful offensively when they don't hit threes. Whereas the last two years, even two years ago, that offense was pretty solid when Kennedy mm-hmm. Chandler got going. They, they didn't hit threes. Tennessee wasn't going to score unless it was an Olivier game, which you got one of those a month, maybe. This year, it feels like it's different, and Dalton's the biggest reason of that, no doubt. But Jonas is number two, and Jonas has given Tennessee that interior scoring threat that Rick Barnes, you know, those of us who sit in Rick Barnes' press conferences twice a week during basketball season know he brings up over and over again of having a guy you can rely on that can score inside. Um, and he'd kind of gotten away from that. Like, I think, I'm trying to think how what the they've played what. 12 SEC games now, so they played 10 coming into the week. The first five SEC games, Jonas was averaging, I think, 16 points per game, and then the last five entering this week, it was eight points per game, uh, mm-hmm. and he scored six in both those losses to South Carolina and AM. So he's the guy that can take the pressure off of Dalton on nights when Zakai and Santi and Josiah aren't shooting well. Um, and it's not like he's been playing horribly, but he had gotten away from – he hadn't been that dominant post force, and it felt like he was the best guy on the court. Uh, at Arkansas on Wednesday, and while he didn't do a ton, ton offensively last night, it was still he was more efficient scoring, um, and was just a lot more effective as a whole. And to me, I think he might be the biggest X factor on this Tennessee team as you you had in March. And when we talk about what lies ahead, there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of roadblocks here uh, to Tennessee getting to a one seed uh, potentially. They can make up a bunch of ground, like because right now they're looking at that two seed spot, which would be good. But you look at the history of the tournament, one seeds the difference between being a one seed and a two seed, and how much likelier you are to make a final four or go deeper in the tournament. It's just huge. Like it doesn't sound like it should be that big of a difference, but two seeds go down all the time uh, early in the tournament. One seeds rarely do. Like if you go through it, like one seeds, it's just where you want to be. Rarely do you go the Purdue route from a year ago when you're when you're a one seed. So that's really Twice. what you're. Yes, twice. Yeah, that's true. Um, But this week is huge because I think Tennessee has to finish this week strong. Um, I think you would probably test this too. It's a rematch uh, against A&M. You feel great about that one at home. But at Mizzou, you can't take that lightly, even with their struggles um, in SEC play this year and kind of coming back down to earth a little bit in Columbia. You need to go undefeated this week as well because you've got six losses right now. A lot of big, uh, good losses across the board outside, like you said. The AM loss was tough, but I mean, South Carolina is not a bad loss by any means, based on what we've seen from Carolina. Mississippi State, not a bad loss on the road in the SEC. But you finish the final four. I don't know if there's anyone in college basketball who has a more difficult final four regular season play uh, for uh, any big time program because you've got Auburn at home on a Wednesday. 
you go to Alabama, to South Carolina, and then Kentucky at home to close it out. I mean, those are four top 25 teams um, to close things out. And I mean, I imagine if you're Barnes, best case scenario is three and one. Um, I think if you go four and oh, where like this team is just un- like the expectation should be split two and two, maybe. Um, but you hope for three and one. I think three and one is where you ultimately want to be, um, especially if you're going for a one seed. I think you're still in a one seed category or right there, depending on how the tournament goes. If you go three and one in that stretch, but you got to take care of business this week. And then you've got to, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a lot. I, I, I'm just very, very excited to see these next two weeks of Tennessee basketball because every game is just going to be ginormous. And, um, all it's hard to sweep Kentucky in the regular season. It's hard, obviously to, uh, to beat Auburn at all times. We saw how that was a year ago, um, against Tennessee and Tennessee Auburn. It's always been really feisty at Alabama. I think Alabama's only lost one, home game and like Clemson in the challenge yeah yeah they're like 27 and one or something in their last 28 home games or like it's it doesn't feel like it's a sneaky tough place to play in Tuscaloosa but it is and they have the best home record of anyone uh in the SEC so that's obviously going to be extremely difficult so I don't know what do you make of this like stretch run here for Tennessee you said it best to start you just got to take care of business this week these are two games you have to win and then yeah, I mean, I think two and two should probably be the expectation, but three and one the goal. And I think even right now, I would pick Tennessee to go three and one in those games. Um, mm. You know, I think Tennessee will hold serve, and in some ways, you know, I think Auburn's a bad matchup for Tennessee because they got J- Johnny Broom, the physical big man who's really skilled. Like we've seen Tennessee struggle with those guys, but you know, I just have so much questions about Auburn's backcourt play, and I just don't think they're going to be able to come into Knoxville and win. And then, you know, I think. Alabama, that'll be a really tough game. Probably be the one I picked them to lose. But like at the same yeah. time, like I think Tennessee kind of that's a, a pretty good matchup for Tennessee. Like I think the teams that play fast and struggle defensively are the teams that Tennessee typically has had a, their most success against this year. Kind of going into the Kentucky game too. Of Tennessee can play fast and they don't get slowed into a possession game, and their defense is just a lot better typically than those opponents. Um, and then it, it feels like South Carolina is coming down to earth a little bit. Not that that game's going to be easy by any means, but you know, Tennessee hasn't gotten swept by South Carolina since Barnes second year, I think. And that was, I guess, the, the South Carolina team that went to the final four. So, you know, I think they'll get they'll split those games uh, on the road and they'll hold serve at, at home. And, you know, to the same point, opposite way, to be fair, Kentucky's playing a lot better right now. Uh, this was probably their best best week, if not of the season, at least of SEC play to the way their defense played and the wins over Ole Miss and then at Auburn. So it's going to be really hard. Um and it's going to tell us a lot about this team. And I think at the same, even just adding to how much more fun it's going to be. Those are Alabama and Auburn. Those are the teams that you're competing with to win the SEC. Uh, and you're going to get a chance to play both of those teams in the last two weeks and, you know, kind of control your own destiny. And that will also go right into the one seed conversation as well. I like it. Uh, Ryan, more intriguing hire for you. The running back coach opening with Jerry Mack taking the running backs coaching job with the Jacksonville Jaguars or the inside linebacker coach opening because Brian John Marie goes back home to Michigan. Which one's more intriguing to you? It's, I would even say probably both. I, I was thinking of the word being intriguing or important, and hmm. my answer would be the same either way. But to me, the intriguing standpoint is definitely linebackers coach, just like by hmm. a lot, because no one on Tennessee's defensive staff has left since 
Josh Heupel's been here, and it's kind of like we've seen the tendency to go in house, and it seems like running back coach is not going to be an in house hire. He's gonna he's gonna go out, but generally speaking, offensively, like he likes to keep in house. He likes guys to know his offense. What's that going to look like on the defense, and what is that going to look like for you know how involved Tim Bakes is in making the, making the hire uh, inside linebackers, and just it it is a this kind of goes more to the important. That's to me, that's the intrigue of it. The importance of it is just like everything Tennessee does on the defense feels more important from a coaching level. Cause the whole offense, you know, not that those position coaches aren't important cause that would be dumb and short-sighted to say it's not, but like, it's that's Josh Heifel's baby and it's the offense. And you just kind of have some confidence in what it's going to be under, especially a position, you know, running backs coach linebacker. Like that's the spot Tennessee needs to recruit really well at. And the defense, it feels like in a lot of ways, you know, the two big questions for how good can Josh Heupel be at Tennessee is how good can he consistently get quarterback play and can how good can the defense get with the offensive system he runs. So uh, recruiting is a big part of that. And then, yeah, you have a lot of young linebackers that were promising last year, another pretty solid linebacker. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Recruiting class coming in in the inside linebackers room, it's like, you need those guys to get better. Uh, who do you hire and how can you develop? And then just as a whole, the recruiting aspect to me is always going to be more interesting on the defensive side of the ball than the offensive side. I also would uh, like, here's something that I've seen where it's like, I think some Tennessee fans have been, are kind of nervous where it's like, uh-oh, we lost two, two coaches this cycle. Here's what you got to understand. You look around the sport, Florida getting picked apart, like they think they're getting settled and then the strength coach is gone. Offensive line coach is gone. Um, obviously, the NFL hiring really late here um, has affected a lot of things. Um, Jerry Mack uh, taking an NFL job this late uh, in the cycle um, is obviously something you just it, the calendar is just so weird now. And I feel like I don't know. I would like to see the numbers on this of if this NFL coaching cycle has brought in more college guys than most in years past, because it feels like that to me because men are comes in to follow Jim Harbaugh and obviously Jim Harbaugh bringing some guys. You look at Seattle bringing in uh, college guys. You see Tampa Bay filling out their offensive staff with Liam Cohen and offensive guys. Like it does feel like the NFL weirdly this off season has a huge influx of former college guys. I mean, Ryan Grubb, another one obviously did the Seahawks. So it's not just Tennessee. So if you look around the league, I mean, you look at Georgia now. Brian McClendon just uh, joined Liam Cohen's staff. Uh, Georgia, this uh, this cycle, Georgia lost their best defensive recruiter, Fran Brown, to Syracuse, and their best offensive recruiter, Brian McClendon, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL. So 
you're not immune anywhere. And it's a good sign that Tennessee has guys that are moving on, that Alex Golish gets the USF coaching job and he's doing well out of the gate. That's good for Tennessee. It's good for Tennessee that Jerry Mack is getting an NFL job. It's good for Tennessee that Brian Jean-Marie was poached to go back to the defending national champions uh, with the Michigan Wolverines. That's a big deal for him and big deal for the program. This is a good problem to have because it means Josh Heupel and Tim Banks have hired well to this point um, at their time at Tennessee. I think because it seems like Volquest Austin Price reporting that it looks like it, both hires are going to come from the outside. Um, that's interesting because you've promoted from within, like you talked about here, the last couple cycles. The names that have been thrown around, you look at TCU's running back coach, um, you look at Oregon's running back coach, I believe in the latest in Volquest that both have interviewed officially um, at Tennessee. We'll see on a couple others, the Arkansas running backs coach. But either way, Memphis ties, uh, Chattanooga ties, like they make sense. Um, and that's good. It's a pull. If you pull Oregon, who have been a recruiting juggernaut, like that's a great pull if you're able to uh, pull him from, uh, from Oregon to Tennessee. And then linebackers coach, I think to your point, what m- interests me more about the linebacker position opening, and we should say inside because Eckler will still be coaching outside uh, most likely. I think what's most interesting is Tim Banks having to like, there's just, you could go a different way. Like you don't have to necessarily hire inside linebackers. You can, you can coach inside linebackers or Tim Banks because he has in the past. You could hire a safety coach to replace you in that role. So there's a lot of different ways. Like running backs coach is running backs coach. Like you're just going to have to get somebody um, who is familiar uh, and it's just going to be like, it's just, they need to be a running backs coach you don't necessarily have to go the inside linebackers coach route. So I think that's, what's more interesting to me. Then you could all like, we obviously know about the chop aspect here and what he's uh, done as a recruiter at Tennessee. And um, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I mean, by and large, I think that's what interests. That's what interests me the most in terms of the defensive side of the hire is that they have more versatility if they want to go that route. Yeah, no, that is, that is a good point. And you're right. It's, there's just a lot of options and there's a lot, there's, it feels like there's a lot more unknown with the defensive side. Um, mm-hmm. Just from the fact that again, you've never had any sort of movement there. Um, and then going back to kind of your general point, you know, even losing two coaches in one cycle just doesn't, I don't know. Maybe I'm so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm so accustomed to first mm-hmm. really covering college football during Butch Jones tenure when they like five coaches left every cycle. Um, but you know, it's, it's pretty minor. I mean, you guys, those guys, those position coaches move around so much. So to me, it's the Jean Marie one's really the only one you even bat an eye at because it's the only one that's, you know, a lateral move of anyone that's left. Everyone else has either gone to the NFL or Alex Gullish getting a head coaching job. But even then it's a place that Jean Marie's been uh, with Sharon Moore and, it's the defending national champions and it sounds like they you know committed to a three-year contract which Tennessee wasn't willing to do so there's a lot of stuff that that adds up there as well and it's a enviable position like Tennessee is loaded at linebacker right now like this is a job that I think will attract a lot of interest I mean you've got Arian Carter now look like he will start next to Keenan Peely uh, so you got a vet in the room and the running, the linebacker room is just so much healthier than what it was when Brian John Marie came in so he's leaving it better than um what it what it was coming in so i think that's huge is that these guys are locked in and you've got a lot of depth with t lander with smith with uh with um 
Spillman coming in. Like there's just a lot of talent uh, coming in um, to that linebacker room. So I think it's an enviable position depending on no matter where they go. But I would just uh, caution Tennessee fans who are freaking out about losing two positional coaches this cycle. It's like, hey, A, that's a good thing. And B, Hypo is hired well to this point. And I think uh, uh, deserve the benefit of the doubt in terms of where they go. And I think fans will be ultimately happy with where they go. My My gut reaction is. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, Ryan, true or false, the Vols QB rushing attack will be better in 2024 than it was in 2023. I'll say yes, with my X factor being like scrambles and broken mm. plays, runs off of that. I would say as a whole on designed runs, I don't think you're going to see a massive difference. You might even mm. see less from the standpoint of, who does Tennessee have as their backup quarterback? You can't afford to be too, too aggressive. I think you'll continue to see the stuff on some short yard situations. You'll continue to see the stuff in the red zone. Um, but I don't think you're going to see it really over the top or even over the top, just the way they used Tin and Hooker really in 22 um, when they had a backup they were confident in. And Hooker was obviously really good with his legs. But I'll say the difference is I think Nico will be better making or running the ball on some unscripted plays uh, than Joe Milton was. I'm going to go true. I think it's going to be a stronger rushing attack than what we saw a year ago, closer to what we saw with Hendon two years ago. Like you said, the scrambling will be a big part of it. I think because we saw so many, it's just so interesting because we saw so many QB design runs from Nico in the bowl game. Like that was where we were nearing double digits in design runs uh, for Nico in that game. And Nico's obviously, a much more natural runner. Um, he's more of a freelancer. He's a lot more comfortable in that uh, way. I don't think we've seen uh, like Hendon was a natural runner too, but he wasn't necessarily a freelancer. You know what I mean? Like Hendon was just no. such a machine in the pocket and getting the ball where it needed to go. And like when he needed to take off, he would take off, but neither Hendon or Joe had the, <sighs> It's just one of those things. I don't think they have that natural feel to just create off script to the extent that Nico is. So I just, my gut tells me Nico's going to find ways to gobble up QB yards. And like, if it's third and nine and nothing's there and his just long strides and uh, his natural instincts is just, he's going to gobble up rushing yards. Like, I think Nico is actually going to have a pretty high amount of rushing yards. And it wouldn't surprise me um, in the next two years with Nico, he outgains both Hinden and Joe on the ground in both years. I would not be surprised if that ends up being the case. And I would also be curious, like how common it is. Like, do we, do we see Nico not run at all where they encourage him? It's like, Hey, it's Chattanooga. It's um, who else is on the schedule? Miss, is Mississippi state on the schedule off the top of my head? I'm sure. Yeah. Mississippi yep. state, like certain games like that where you're like, you're, you're going to be okay. We don't need you to put your body in the line. I wonder if it's just, we see, a lot more of those design runs that we saw against Iowa only in the big games, only in the big ones. And they, they keep them. But like we saw last year, it's a, it's an integral part of this offense. Nico has to run week in week out. The quarterback has to be able to move and do things uh, with his legs or this just, it's a missing, it was a missing variable this year that you just have to have week over week, regardless of if you use it a lot more in big games. Yeah, I mean, you think about the two games the offense probably looked the best in. It'd be the first half of the Alabama game and the Kentucky game, and Milton ran the ball well in both those games. Or 
in the whole Kentucky game in the first half of the Alabama game. So you're right. And I think freelancing is a good way to describe it um, with Nico where Hendon was very surgical and Hendon, you knew Hendon knew what he was going to do when he was going to run. And it wasn't as crafty, I guess. Um, But at the same time, like Nico, I think it's going to be a lot better throwing on the run and throwing out of the pocket than Mm. either Hooker and Milton were. So, you know, in some ways that could, decreased the rushing yards he gets in some of those situations where when plays broke down for Hendon, Hendon was oftentimes very much looking to run up the middle. And if he only got two yards, he only got two yards. If he lost a couple yards, he lost a couple yards. He was just trying to avoid the bad play and wasn't always looking to make the big play, where I think Nico is in a lot more be looking to make splash plays when when things break down. Yeah. Um, but either way, it's a good problem to have, and I'm very, very curious to see what that looks like um, this fall. we got a ways to go, but uh, still something to look out for this fall. Ryan Shumpert, uh, final thing, ball baseball back one and one uh, as we're taping this before uh, the Baylor final uh, with Xander and company uh, in Dallas. But A.J. Russell, I think, is the highlight of the weekend thus far. I mean, just electric stuff out of the gate. We'd heard all offseason that aj russell um was gonna be just uh we only saw him briefly right like last year in the brief amount of time we saw him he was fantastic um borderline unhittable but it was just a small small sample now you see where he pitches opening day like he is moving into the friday spot that's a big deal to win that what were your takeaways from what you saw from aj russell in just the flame throwing high velo strikeout heavy game that we saw um on friday night against um texas tech well talk about it a little more in the macro first jack and i were we're talking about it i guess on thursday night you know after we had talked to tony uh earlier in the week and you know he had said to be to throw on saturday and russell on friday and you know we kind of talked about you know just like the stability of having beam on saturday and you know we we're kind of discussing that i was like yeah it's like i don't really i don't really understand that that doesn't mean that that couldn't be part of the reason i was like so we were trying to kind of figure out why, and you know, I kind of just said almost offhandedly, I was like, well, I do think A.J. Russell's ceiling is probably higher than Drew Beam even this season, and that's what you saw. I mean, you saw that, to me, my takeaway, just one game, no one's told me this, A.J. Russell was pitching on opening day because his ceiling this season, he can be better than Drew Beam. Mm-hmm. And just the electricity of the stuff, the upper 90s fastball was just – insane run on it i mean it, it was ridiculous watching on tv broadcast a lot of the when you're at the games you you miss that stuff a lot of the times mm-hmm. and i think it'll continue to be about how consistent he can be with the off-speed stuff um you know he talked uh earlier i guess this was the start fall or start preseason practice about you know adding multiple pitches and trying to be more of a a pure four pitch guy. And by no means did it feel like he was one pitch. Like I thought his off speed stuff was good. Um, but that's going to be the question marks. How consistent can he be with that? How lethal can he be with that? Because that fastball, man, it's going to be top five, top 10 of anybody in the entire country. Um, it's just so, so effective. And he was dominant. I mean, it was, again, we'll see what happens tonight, but I'll be surprised if anything we see tonight makes the biggest takeaway from the weekend, other than AJ Russell, being fantastic i mean it's just like ace like first round high first round stuff that we saw from aj russell and it's just kind of wild that like you never know when you like you read the reports and you you obviously talk to tony and different things where some things need to be kept to the vest (laughs) and it's just like we don't want to hype up aj too much because i mean obviously young kids still 
Um, hasn't been a starter um, to this point at Tennessee. Has not gotten a lot of pitches. And he comes out. And now it's just hard for uh, any Tennessee fan not to be just, wow. Uh, I think we're going to be okay in the ch- post Chase Burns era where you wondered with Chase Dellander going pro and Chase Burns going Wake Forest. You're like, okay, like Tennessee has talent. There's a lot of depth. Like Matthew Dallas looks like uh, a future guy next year, uh, but he's yeah. not really uh, a realistic option um, yet. Um, and we should say, yeah, like he'll be an option in the bullpen and everything else. But in terms of being one of your three aces, that's still probably a season away. But you needed some certainty outside of Drew Beam. And to Drew Beam's credit, he is as certain as they go where you watched last night. And it's different, though. Like, he's not a strikeout guy. He's never going to be the high strikeout guy um, for Tennessee. He's not going to dominate guys the way that A.J. Russell did or Burns did last year. It's a different kind of success that Drew Beam has. And he's still stable. He's still a high floor guy and someone Tennessee's going to need week in, week out. And uh, I think he pitched more than adequate um, last night. Tennessee only scoring one run. It was just it's hard to win no matter what. And uh, the other thing is just the amount of bullpen arms Tennessee has. Like we haven't seen Kirby yet um, to this point. Like they have options. And I think that's going to take some time for Tennessee and Frank Anderson and Tony Vitello to get a feel of how they want to go about this bullpen because they have so many different, unique, solid options that it's just it's going to take time. And I'm very curious um, what that all means. And I guess the final thing here on Tennessee baseball, Ryan, what have you made of the order? Because um, that was something I was very excited about coming in. And um, obviously one run, it was a little bit uh, frustrating last night with a lot of runners left on base, but they had some offensive explosion. Dylan Trialing hit the ball a billion uh, feet uh, last night. Um, but what do you make of the lineup and, uh, do you, uh, were you surprised by some of the order choices through two games? Yeah, I was a little surprised. I mean, I don't think we'd ever seen Blake Burke hit the two hole. That just feels like mm-hmm. an interesting spot for him. But what you saw is, you know, the stagger, the lefty righty stagger that Tony mm-hmm. likes to do so much. And I don't know, like, I just think not that you can't do it to some degree, like it just doesn't fit naturally. I think there's two questions. I don't think all of it fits supernaturally this year, and you don't have an obvious leadoff, man. So how do those two things work out and mesh together? And the fact that you're probably your two mostly. How all that works out will be really fascinating to me and how hard and fast today today stick to the lefty righty uh, kind of way through the lineup. Cause to me, I think Christian Moore and Billy Amick are going to be the two best bats. Um, and I think you're going to want to use those guys, you know, I guess you could do it at two and four, but you know, to me, there definitely need to be two guys in the two, three and four spots. So that's what I'll be curious to see kind of long-term. Well, I think too. And I like the Reese Chapman, Kavaris tears uh, alternate like that's just, I think both are going to hit, both are going to be good. Both have had uh, great starts um, here, but, I think the Burke spot at number at the two hole. Um, I, I do wonder about that long term. I think he's one for 10 uh, to this point uh, in the weekend in that spot. But I think what's to your point, I think Christian Moore is going to be their best hitter this year. Um, Christian Moore has been good through this point. Major League Baseball, where's the best hitter hit? The two spot. Like you want your guy in that two spot. You also just want your best hitters to get the most amount of opportunities at the plate. And I understand Tony likes to uh, even out the lineup, but you know what I mean? Like he wants to have 
just depth from one through nine. That being said, I, you said like they don't really have a like, true leadoff. I think Hunter Inslee is just kind of like Seth Stevenson from two years ago. I think that's more than fine. Like Tennessee was the most dominant team in college baseball with a non-traditional leadoff guy yeah. in Seth. And I think Hunter Inslee's probably got more upside this year than Seth did two years ago. So I think that's not really a worry for me. Um, but I do think you probably, and they have time, like they don't have to figure this out yet. But my gut says they'll end up having to move Semo up to two, Amic to three, Cannon Peebles at four. Like that probably needs to be your one through four um, would be my guess. And then Dryling probably at five would be how I would do things. Um, and then you can figure out the rest of the order, whether that's tier slash Chapman at six, Burke at seven, um, and then eight, nine, depending on who's playing as well. But I, I think that will be, I don't know. Do you agree with that? That that's probably how they should do one through five at the very least. Yeah, no, I do on paper, but then that's where it gets tricky. Cause then it's yeah. like, I think your worst hitter is going to be whoever's starting in the middle infield other than Christian Moore. And that's a righty. So do you mm-hmm. have him at nine? Cause then you have six through eight, that's three straight lefties. And then, you know, it's like, we're, we're like, you don't have to force the stagger, but you do want mm-hmm. some version of it where people can't just throw righty lefty at you at a really even rate or at a really mm-hmm. easy rate where it's easy to script. And you kind of get into some of that with, you know, how it just naturally falls with that. So, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I, I tend to agree that I think your three best hitters are Billy Emmett, Christian Moore. I mean, those are definitely going to be your two best. And then Cannon Peebles, probably number mm-hmm. three. Um, but how does how does that all work out? I'm not totally sure. And obviously, Peebles is a switch hitter, so that gives you a little bit of flexibility uh, with some of the stuff too. Um, but that's kind of the, the complication you get into because you it kind of goes both ways. I can very easily be like, you don't need to be going all in on the you know righty lefty like you've done sometimes in the past. But you can also it also can kind of get away from you where it it is a little bit of a problem pretty easily too. And, and finding yeah. that that right mix and that right formula is the challenge. But you know that's why. Tennessee won't play, you know, a ton of very difficult games for another month uh, after after tonight. So that's what you got all that time to figure out. I love it. Ryan Shepard, when can the good folks check out from you all across uh, Rocky Top Insider this week? Yeah, tons of uh, Tennessee basketball stuff. And we'll have uh, Jack and I. Jack's been holding down the fort for us in uh, Texas this week. So he's had plenty of baseball stuff. Uh, we'll have a baseball pot out probably by Monday. Um hopefully by Monday and tons of stuff kind of looking at the weekend as a whole and then plenty of stuff on the Tennessee basketball week where they look to kind of hold serve and look ahead to a a fun final two weeks of the season of the regular season. I love it. It's going to be a very busy uh, last little bit here. Um, And then spring ball is back for Tennessee next month, like a month from, I think Monday, if that's correct. Memory serves. So uh, it'll be here before you know it. Brian Shepard, always a pleasure, and I'll talk to you next week. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 